Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Easter to you on the second Sunday of the Easter season. I want to start with a question for you this morning. How do you answer when someone asks you, who are you? When someone you're meeting for the first time or someone you don't know well asks you, who are you? How do you answer that question? Well, when somebody asks me that question, I almost always start with my name. I I tell them my name so they have some sense of at least that much. And then what I say after that, what I say beyond that depends a little bit on the situation that I'm in. If I'm out of town somewhere, I will often tell people where I live. I live in Lancaster or Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or if it's further away, I might say I live in southeastern Pennsylvania. Depending on who it is, I might tell them what kind of work I do or what kind of work I used to do. In another setting, I might uh, tell them who I'm related to, who's in my family. A few weeks ago, uh, Nita and I were, my wife Nita and I were in Denver, Colorado, where, where my son lives, and I was meeting some of his friends, and they didn't care about any of that other stuff. They didn't even really need to know my name. They just needed to know I was Dan's dad. So I was introduced to his friends as Dan, this is my dad, and this is my mom. Um, other settings, maybe I'm Dick's son or Lois's son. That's what, that's what people want to know. They want to locate me. But if you think about it, the answer that you give to that question, the answers that I give, generally do two things. Two things. They connect me to a group of people, and they connect me to a story. They connect me to a group of people. All those answers I gave just now connect me either a group of people and or they tell a story. So if I tell you my name is Carl Landis, you may or may not know that my last name is a Swiss-German last name, and that connects me to certain people and to a story. How is it that that is my name? Or maybe where I live. I live here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Well, okay, but how did I get there? What's the story of how you ended up there? What's the story of the place in which you live or what it means, how it shapes you? Or if it's, I tell you about the work that I do, it immediately raises other questions. What kinds, of pe- what kinds of things do you think are important? What kinds of things do you value or enjoy? You may get a hint of that, uh, depending on the kind of work I do. Or what kind of training did you need? Why did you pursue that kind of training? Every answer tells, points, uh, connects me to a group of people and points to a story. But if you ask me to tell you my story... I know that you don't really expect me to tell you every detail of my story, because if I told you every, literally every detail of my story, it would take years for me to tell you my story, would it not? And I, don't, I know that's not the, the kind of detail that you want, because you don't want to know everything that's happened between the time I was born and today. I mean, it might be of interest to you know, I mean, it's also a more complicated story, because I've lived in four different countries, and I've lived in five different U.S. states, and I've lived almost 60 years, and so... The level of detail you want would depend on how long that story gets. Um, You would expect me to summarize that story in some way. You'd expect me to tell you, you know, what was important or where were the shifts or to summarize, you know, uh, periods of time in my life. But no matter how much of that story, no matter how much detail I gave you, I would be doing at least three things. One is I'd be summarizing, right? I would summarize my story. Secondly, I would emphasize some parts of the story, and I would leave out other parts, right? I would draw your attention to certain things that have happened in my life, and I would overlook or just kind of look past other parts as less important or less important to my story. And the third thing that would be true is that you would get my perspective on my story. If you ask me to tell my story, you get my perspective on it, how I see it. If you ask my wife Nita to tell you my story, you'd get a different version, most of which would be true, 
but you know, would need some correction, of course. But if you ask other people who know me well to tell my story, you'd get different perspectives on my story. And the same thing is true for all of us. So I think we understand, without really thinking about it too hard, that the stories that we tell are representations. They're pictures of uh, of the story that underlies it, of the details, or they're interpretations of what, what actually happened. And so if I tell you my story, I'm giving you my perspective on myself, on the things that have shaped my life, on my motivations, my actions. I'm, I'm explaining some of who I am as I tell you my story. Well, I think it's important to keep that in mind because the Bible is like that. All of the things I just said about my story are true about the story the Bible tells. The story the Bible tells summarizes information, summarizes details. It's not Uh, It's not history in exhaustive detail. It doesn't tell us every little twist and turn. And in some of the stories, we would love to have more detail than we do. But it's a summary. The, The story the Bible tells is a summary. It also emphasizes certain parts of the story, and it goes, it ignores other parts. That's why I say it's, we don't have all of the details because it's a summary. It emphasizes some parts, and we have a particular perspective in the story the Bible tells. We have God's perspective. We get God's perspective on the events, on the people, on the actions that have happened in the past. We get God's perspective on his own motivations, his own actions, his own intentions. And so the Bible, just like the story I would tell you about my life, the Bible is a representation of human history. It tells the story of human history, but it's in representational style. It's not giving you every little literal detail. It gives God's perspective, as I said, on all of what has happened. And God's perspective is communicated through the inspiration and the experience of more than 40 different authors who came from all different walks of life. And the parts of the Bible that we we call the books of the Bible really are like, it really is kind of like a library because each of those books was originally created as as a separate document. Some of them were stories, Some of them were um, poems, some of them were songs, some of them were um, letters that were written to a group of people, some of them were prophecies, others of them were sets of instructions or a collection of wisdom. And those separate documents were collected and compiled over the centuries as people recorded by God's inspiration, recorded the things that God revealed to them, the things that God said and did, and the things that they said and did in response to God. And then they told and retold those stories over the centuries. They passed on that collection of writing over the centuries, and it comes to us as what we call the Bible. When Jesus was here on earth, he told us that God himself was directing this process, which makes sense because the Bible tells a pretty clear cohesive story. It fits together, a pretty clear story that fits together over all of those centuries, even though the story it tells spans at least 4,000 years. Most scholars think that Abraham lived around the year 2100 before Jesus' time. Around the year 2100, if we live in the year 2021, that puts about 4,000 years between Abraham and us. So the story takes at least that long and longer. Jesus said in Luke 24, in the account after he was raised on Easter Sunday, he, one of the things he said to his followers, or to, actually to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now that may not seem important to you until you know that 
the way that the people of the time referred to the Scriptures was they called it the law of Moses or the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He was referring there to what we call, what we now call the Old Testament. Jesus was saying to his disciples, everything that's been written, everything that's part of the Bible that you know has, is pointing to me, needs to be, is going to be fulfilled in my life. So over the, over the next several weeks, we want to retell the whole story, the one whole story that the Bible tells. And we're going to review that story the, the Bible tells in only six sermons. Now, that may seem like a lot to you, but it's a fairly brief accounting because it's a long story, and we're going to have to summarize even to do that. But we're going to group all of what happens into six major periods of time or developments, and I think it's, we're doing that because it gives you a big picture to keep in mind as you read any one part of it. Now, if you're wondering why we would do that, why you think, why is that important? I'm going to give you several reasons. One is that this story tells us how we got here. It tells us who we are how we got here. It tells us where we're headed, how things are going to unfold. It helps you to locate yourself and your family in human history or in the history of God's work on the earth. Secondly, it helps us to understand this, understanding this story helps us to understand why Jesus is so important. If you ever wonder why we talk about Jesus so much, I hope that becomes much clearer over the next several weeks because Jesus is, a central, is centrally important to the whole story that the Bible tells. And just as importantly, as a third reason, I'm really hoping that you leave today, this sermon, but also this whole series, with a profound understanding that the Bible does tell a one cohesive story. And by that I mean a story that fits together from beginning to end. So that you'll always remember that there's a larger framework into which all the different parts of the Bible fit into. A lot of the teaching that we offer, a lot of the teaching that you hear from many sources, um, takes, um, comes to you in bits and pieces. So we'll do a whole sermon on a teach, like a story from Luke, or we'll talk about, we haven't recently, but we might choose a chapter of Ezekiel and explain what that chapter is about and what it means. Or maybe you pr- will preach a sermon from the Psalms or from Revelation. And if you don't understand that there is a big story, big picture story behind all of that, it comes to just seem like a jumble of puzzle pieces. And I think today for many people, it's just more complicated than what they want to get into, and they kind of come away with a general sense of, I think I'm supposed to try to be as good as I can, and beyond that, I'm just going to kind of let, lean into God and let God, you know, cover for the, for the rest. Anything I didn't understand, I'm going to just kind of trust God to cover for me. And I, there's more to it than that. Let me just say there's more to it than that. Um, we don't, yeah, God does love you, and God will care for you, and God has provided for you, but there's more to it than that simple kind of dismissive kind of story. The other, another reason to keep in mind, this big picture in mind is that if you, lose pick, um, if you lose touch with that bigger picture story and you just pick and choose from different parts of the Bible, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to. You can find biblical support for almost anything you want if you just hone in on a particular verse or a particular story or something. The question is, how does what you're teaching fit into the whole picture, the whole counsel of Scripture is sometimes what we say, the big picture story of the Bible. And hopefully it gives us the wisdom we need to discern between this or that understanding or this or that teaching and to reject things that are not consistent with the whole picture, the whole story of the Bible. So this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you that whole story in one sermon. In fact, I'm going to tell you that whole story in six words, one sentence, It's of six words, and then I'm going to give it to you in six paragraphs, and then next Sunday we'll begin the series of six sermons. 
So my, my one sentence summary, my six word summary of the Bible story is that the Bible story, the Bible tells the story of the unfolding of God's creation project. The unfolding of God's creation project. That's what the whole Bible is about. Now that's a pretty high level view, uh, but there's a couple, imp- a number of important details in that summary. One is that this is God's story. This is God's project God is the main character in this story from the beginning to the end. And if you ever lose touch of God's presence or who God is or what God is doing, you're missing something of the story because this is God's creation project. Secondly, it's about a project that God purposed to do, that God brought about, that God started at some point in time. This is not all that there is to know about God. It's not all of what God is up to. God is not fully consumed by this project. It's a project that God decided to do. It's been unfolding over a long period of time. The word unfolding is chosen uh, carefully because it has been unfolding and it continues to unfold. It's ongoing, in fact, and we ourselves are in that story. We're part of that story because it's not yet complete in the way that it will be. So that's my six-sentence summary, the unfolding of God's creation project. So this series we're calling Creation Project or The Creation Project. But let's, let's uh, zoom down a little bit, and let me give you a little bit more detail and tell you the story in six paragraphs. Six paragraphs. And these, are, these statements are going to be a little bit longer than what my points usually are. If, you, if you're somebody who likes details, you can always watch the video because these slides will show up on the video. Um, so you don't need to scramble to get them all down. But let's do it in six paragraphs, okay? First one, God created a good material world in which every part was designed to flourish in harmony with every other part. God created a good material world. If you listen carefully to the passage that Stephanie read for us a moment ago from Genesis, there's a line in there that was repeat, it's repeated many times in Genesis 1. It says, God saw that it was good. God saw that it was very good. His material creation was very good. God created a material physical world. The spirit God who is eternal created a limited material physical world separate from himself, out of nothing, just because it pleased him to do so. That's why I call it a project. If you've ever heard somebody say that God did this because he was lonely or because he needed friends, because he was need, uh, needy in some way, that's a, that's a false teaching. The God who is eternally Trinity has been in, eternally satisfied within himself, doesn't need this creation project, but it's something that flowed out of who he is. He created this world because it pleased him to do so. And he put a creature, a being, people in this creation project that he created, this world that he created, to represent him in that world. He created a a, a material physical being in that world that would have some of his own characteristics. The Bible says that we are created in the image of God. It doesn't really explain what that means, and so there's some mystery around exactly what that means. But at least part of what that means is that we can be, uh, we're capable of being in a loving relationship with God himself, We're capable of being in a loving personal relationship. We can have a personal connection to the eternal triune God, which is an incredible thing to think about. It also means that we can be in loving relationships with each other, with other human beings, with other God representatives here in the world. And it also, we were also designed to be in loving relationship with all of creation, all of the the whole creation project that God brought about. Human beings were put in there to make sure that that creation would be growing and flourishing in harmony in all directions. 
Also, God promised, God, God was fully present with human beings. In this, in this creation project, God is fully present, never far away, always aware, always attuned to what's happening there. So that's our first paragraph. God created a good material world where everything was designed to, to flow together in harmony. Second paragraph, God, a people, the people God created used the freedom God gave them to, to disobey him. God went further than just creating a creature. God put, uh, gave that creature free will, the ability to choose, to make decisions that would really shape their lives, that would matter in the world in which they lived, the world he had created. He gave them the freedom to choose to disobey, and they, they, they used that freedom in choosing to disobey God and to turn away from God, and in so doing, allowed sin to enter the world. That was the first step into sin, allowed sin to enter the world, and the end consequence, the end result of sin is always death. Sin and death are partners. Sin leads to death. And so in taking that step and choosing to turn away from God, these people invited sin and death into the world. So sin becomes a huge problem in this story of the unfolding of God's creation project, almost from the very beginning. Sin becomes a huge problem. It never fully threatens God's power nor God's purpose, but it complicates every part of the story. Okay, it never fully frustrates or defeats God's power or God's purpose, but it complicates every part of the story. So it's an important paragraph in the story of the Bible tells. Third paragraph, God lovingly, God patiently God persistently worked with the people whose world was now scarred by sin and death to recreate the kind of society he had in mind in the beginning. Remember that that creation project that I mentioned where we were in loving relationship with him, with each other, with all of creation. That was the way it was all designed to work, all in harmony. And God patiently works over the centuries with people who still have free will but who are now trapped and and, and knocked around by sin and death to recreate that, uh, that society that he had in mind in the beginning. God's always fully present with them. One of the early promises he makes to them is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is working out differently. We're, things are scrambled sometimes. The, the story is scarred by sin and death, but I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. And so the, we have the unfolding of the story where we see God's amazing and persistent grace. God continues to pursue the people who often choose against him, often turn away from him. And so over the centuries uh, that the story unfolds, we have people at times being more faithful and other times being less faithful to God's call and to God's purpose. God calls, God calls a particular family, a particular group of people to be his representatives here on earth. Initially, we were all supposed to be God's representatives here on earth. But when that kind of fell through, he chose a particular group of people and said, I'm going to work especially through you. And you're going to function kind of like a priestly people in the sense that you're going to represent me to the people. The way you live is going to show people how that original creation project was supposed to work. The way you live is going to show that to the whole world. And so we have his calling to Abraham and then echoed in Moses so that when Moses receives the law for the children, the people of Israel in Exodus 19, one of the things that God says to the people through Moses is he says, now if you will obey me fully and keep my covenant, 
then out of all the nations, he means not, not countries like we think of them, but all the people groups, all the people groups on the earth, then out of all the nations, all the people groups, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, we know that from paragraph one, the whole earth is mine because I created all of it, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'm going to work through you in a particular way to call everyone on earth back to what I had in mind in the beginning. Paragraph four, God promised to send a special messenger, a special messenger at some point who would bring a decisive end to the struggle with sin and with death, with sin and failure. God promised to send a special messenger who would bring about a decisive end. All along, from the very beginning, if you, if you know the Bible story, you know that in Genesis 3, which is very near the beginning, God promises, kind of hints at a future redeemer, someone who's going to fix this problem. And all along the way, all across the centuries, God repeats that promise, leading and promising them that the struggle with sin and failure will come to an end. He said he would send someone who would assure that eventually his creation project would work the way he intended in the beginning and provide a final resolution to all of their troubles. It was a little confusing across the centuries because sometimes this special messenger was described in ways that sounded like he would be a king. Other times the descriptions sound like he's going to work, uh, look more like a priest. Other descriptions make it sound like he's going to be more of a... Um, a prophet. He's going to set things right and upset things, and he's going to be a, more of a prophet. Other descriptions sound more like he's going to be a servant. Some descriptions, it sounds like he's going to be powerful and in charge. And other descriptions sound like he's going to be weighed down and suffer, that he's going to be more of a servant who suffers. Of course, the people of Israel preferred the, the pictures where he was you know, in triumph and in charge and powerful. And they wanted somebody, they, they liked the idea that somebody would be triumphant and hardwired to God in the ways that Moses seemed to be. That's what they were looking forward to. They were looking to, forward to the end of sin and death and the struggle, remembering that God promised to always be with them. Paragraph five. So paragraph four, God pr- provides a, a promise to send a special messenger. Paragraph five, God astonishes everyone who's been anticipating this development Astonishingly, the special messenger turns out to be God himself in the person of Jesus. This special messenger turned out to be God himself, which as we look back on it now is a story, part of the story that we're pretty familiar with, but we lose touch, I think, a little bit with how how that kind of upended things. Because God was the eternal spirit God who created this creation project as separate from himself. And what the coming of Jesus meant was that God entered that physical material world himself Instead of just sending another human messenger or a prophet who would do his work in that place. God was seen as somebody who would never, never stoop to do that. It was not not really imagined as possible. And we now realize that it was really the only way to solve the problem of sin and death because only a a, a sinless human being could break the curse of sin and the, and the power of sin, but no human being was, was capable of living a sinless life. Only God himself was capable of living a sinless life. And so it was only by God coming in the form of man, a human person, that those two cap- capacities could be put together. So when Jesus died, 
as a sinless human being, as God and a sinless human being, he paid the full penalty for human sin. He was able to do that, able to break the power of sin over people's lives. And God then made it clear, as we talked last week, by raising Jesus from the dead, that he had also triumphed over death itself, over the penalty, the the final penalty for sin. God had also defeated death. Forgiven sin, defeated sin, and also triumphed over the final penalty for sin. And it was only then, after Easter, that his disciples, his followers realized that Jesus, that every, that Jesus resolved and fulfilled every theme, every promise, every image, every hope that had come before, that had been presented before him in the story. That in his person, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, he, he resolved all of those things in himself. Jesus also, in his teaching, gave us a new phrase. Interestingly enough, I didn't realize this before this week, but this phrase doesn't appear in the Old Testament anywhere, and that's the phrase, the kingdom of God. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than anything else. He seems to have been referring to the place or the situation where God's rule is complete and where his dream comes to life. His dream for this creation where everything was flourishing and harmonious where God's rule is complete and that dream comes to light. It's somewhat like the picture we have in Revelation that Stephanie read for us earlier from the end of the story. And as I read for for you earlier from Luke 24, (coughs) Jesus says that all of what was written before points to me. All of what came before in the law, in the prophets, and in the Psalms points to me and must be fulfilled. Everything that was written there The writer of Hebrews says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So Jesus, in Jesus, God comes into this project himself. Paragraph six, God's people are now waiting for God to fully fulfill his remaining promises. That's that's the part of the story that you and I live in. God's people are now waiting for God to fully fulfill his promises. Jesus' death and resurrection was a decisive breakthrough in this struggle with sin and death, with sin and failure, but we're still waiting, you and I, for sin and death to be fully and finally defeated, to no longer be an issue in our lives at all. And God's promise is that that day is coming, that that day is coming when he will fully fulfill his promises. When Stephanie read from Revelation, we heard that the announcement, look, God's dwelling is now among his people. God's presence that has been promised throughout all the centuries, and Jesus himself promised when he left, he said, what did he say? All authority has been given to me, go and make disciples, and I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise in Revelation is that in the future, God's dwelling will fully be among his people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, God will, himself will be with them, and they will be, he will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, <clears throat> no more penalty for sin, no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And the one who's seated on the throne says, 
See, I am making all things new. I'm recreating my creation project. I'm renewing my creation project. It's going to be the way I intended from the beginning. In this chapter of the story, in this paragraph of the story in which you and I live, we have two assignments as God's people. Two assignments that shape our lives, regardless of where we live, regardless of what our life stage is, regardless of what kind of work we do, regardless of what, what kind of obstacles or limitations we face. We have two assignments as God's people living in this part of the story. And the first one is to live out the reality of God's creation project, to live out the reality of the age to come in our lives right now. All along, God has looked for a people who, in the way they live, in the way they conduct themselves, would represent his, his picture of, where, of the place where God's rule is complete and where his dream comes to life. And so among the people of God, that's the place where God's dream comes to life in our time. Being the people who model kingdom living to all the peoples of the earth, modeling the way that we'll all live in the age to come as described in Revelation. And listen to how Peter describes this in his letter in 1 Peter. He says, this would sound familiar because it echoes things from centuries ago. He says, but you, he's talking about to the followers of Jesus, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're chosen to serve, chosen to represent God's purposes in the world, chosen to represent God himself. Not because you're, God loves you more than other people, not because you're better than other people. You're chosen to serve God's purposes. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You have the privilege of representing God to the world in the way that he initially intended. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Now you have been chosen for this assignment and welcomed into the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Live such good lives, he says, among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. He's talking there about living out the reality of the kingdom of God. So our first assignment is to live out the kingdom of God. The second is to invite other people to join us. To invite other people to join us. This was never meant to be an exclusive club. It was never designed to keep people out. It was designed to welcome people in. And the goal is, the hope is that people would see our lives lived in such a different way, such a hopeful way, that they, of course they would want to join us. Of course they would want to surrender their lives to the lordship of Jesus to become part of the kingdom of God. And so our assignment is to live out God's purposes and God's character and to invite other people to join us. So there you have it. The whole story of the Bible in six words, or in six paragraphs if you prefer, the unfolding of God's creation project. One of the main things I hope that you remember from this morning is that everything in the Bible fits into this story somewhere. Everything finds its location in that story somewhere. Everything in the Bible tells some part of that story. Everything in the Bible fills in more details in some part of that story. It doesn't tell us everything we might want to know about every part of the story. Remember, it's a summary. It's not exhaustive detail, but it gives us God's perspective on what's important. It gives us God's perspective on what's important in human history, both past, present, and future. 
It tells us who God is. It tells us what God is like. And it tells us what God calls us to. It's very clear about those things. It tells us enough to know how to respond. It tells us enough to know how to obey, how to cooperate with what God is doing in his creation project. It tells us enough to give us confidence and hope as we walk faithfully with Jesus in our, in our time and in, our, in, our chapter, in the chapter of God's story that we are part of. And so in this Easter season, in this Easter season, I invite you to consider these things and to be, um, to, dr- to be drawn in by the power and the promise of the resurrection of Jesus. We can say with Peter in his letter, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen. Let me ask the Lord to guide our steps as we uh, undertake this journey together. Lord, I thank you for your, uh, your work in human history. I thank you for the ways that you have re- relentlessly, in the most positive sense of the word, persistently, faithfully remained with your people, remained faithful to find a new way, to, to move forward, to patiently work with people who have free choice, free will, people who frequently turn away from you, It's astonishing that while we were still your enemies and walking away from you, running away from you, that you died for us to make it possible for us to be restored to right relationship with you. Lord, open our hearts and our minds over the next several weeks as we take in the whole story of the Bible. Lord, help us to understand in a profound way. Help us to understand your purposes and your call in our lives in a deeper way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.